Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut. I'm an ASC cinematographer, and I wanted to kind of talk to you about something. Getting started in this industry is almost impossible. And my wife, Lydia, and I, 14 years ago, created a resource called Filmmakers Academy to make it possible. We saw a lot of gatekeeping in this industry and not a lot of sharing knowledge. So we wanted to pull back the curtain, give you confidence, teach you all the necessary skills to be an amazing, successful filmmaker, and package it all on this online resource that you have at your fingertips, on set, on your phone, on your laptop, whatever it is. So we're going to give you $50. So if you go into the show notes, click the link, and hit the promo code FAPOD50, you're going to get $50 on your first year of an all-access membership. And I cannot wait for you to join our immense and immersive community at Filmmakers Academy, where we network, we share knowledge, we just bond as this huge filmmaking uh, resource to ignite your creativity and push you beyond your boundaries. I cannot wait to see you in the Academy, and let's get to the podcast. This is Brendan Sweeney here at Filmmakers Academy, and we have the amazing Alice Brooks here. How's it going? Great. Thank you for having me. This is great. Absolutely. Thank you so much. How's everything been going recently? Amazing. It's really great to be working and and the pandemic seeming to be over to yeah. some degree here in the States. Yeah, the industry has been super busy. It's been firing on all cylinders. Have you really been feeling it now that things are starting to wind down? The industry is opening up. Yeah, we're so busy right now. It's really, I mean, even finding crews really hard right now because everyone's working. That's crazy. Well, thank you so much for giving us some time. Today, I would love to talk about Tick, Tick, Boom, all the inciting stuff that you have going on. We just got through the Oscars, which was great. And, you know, for our audience, I really want to get into what your career has been like starting out and leading up to this point. I was doing some research which was super fascinating to see how you were bi-coastal. You were starting out as a child actor. You were working on a lot of national spots, even got to work frequently on the David Letterman show. What was that like as a young artist before transitioning into being a cinematographer? My childhood was fantastic. I mean, I would get picked up after school and instead of going to ballet or, or tap or whatever after gymnastics, my parents would take us to auditions and I, really got to talk a lot to grown-ups and then and then when I started booking commercials I did almost um, 40 national commercials as a kid and um, between the ages of five and ten and it was this incredible life where I got to be part of things that I, I were just bigger than the world around me and so it was really cool. And how do you think that helped shape shape you artistically before knowing that you wanted to be a cinematographer? You're entrenched in it. You're seeing the process. And I imagine you're getting to work with some amazing filmmakers, especially from that time period. How did that help you understand that even before being a cinematographer that you wanted to be in the film industry? I remember the first. Well, I, I was all I always was gravitating towards the camera people. One one cinematographer who I worked with all the time called me funny face and we just had this really nice rapport and then but I remember the first time that I really realized there was something magical going on and I was doing this prodigy commercial and prodigy was like the very first internet product and they had me and two other girls sitting in front of a computer and they just said we were they were going to light and they said you guys can play some video games while we light so we were playing some video games and then they said okay you guys can go home now and I was crushed I thought I got fired. And then we see the commercial and they had taken, you know, a reverse shot on the computer as if we were interacting with the internet and then the three of us just having the best time. And I said, oh, there's some interesting ways to tell stories through cinema or through the camera. That's amazing. And was there, and I read this story and I would love for you to tell it because it was very inspiring. Was there something specific in those early years that made you realize, oh, I want to be a cinematographer. And I know there was something that happened on, on the beach, right? Yeah. And I would love for you to talk about that story. It was super inspiring. Um, so 
uh, we, my family moved from New York City to Los Angeles when I was 10, and I kept auditioning some once I got here um, to California, but I wasn't ever really booking jobs, and it, and, and I, it was five years of that. There was a little bit of work, but not a ton, but my sister was constantly working. She was always on the TV series, and so I would go to after school, instead of going to auditions now, I was mostly going to see whatever soundstage she was working on. And I'd sit in the dark doing my homework, but I was really watching everyone else work. And and I thought lighting was magic. And so I ended up having this one audition for um, the movie While You Were Sleeping, Sandra Bullock movie, While You Were Sleeping, there's this sister role. And I auditioned seven times for the same part. And on my last audition with the director, I left and I knew in my heart I didn't get it. It was between me and the, the girl who did get it. And my mom and I went for a walk on the beach in Santa Monica because we lived in the valley and it was rush hour. And on our walk on the beach, I said to my mom, Mom, I don't, I don't want to be an actress. I want to be a cinematographer. And I looked down and there was this little gray and white feather. No matter how many times I tell the story, I get goosebumps. There's this little gray and white feather and I picked it up. And it's, I've carried it around the world with me as a, a symbol or a, a, a way to remember the moment I declared my dream. That is amazing. And what is even more incredible is after all of those years, you were recently brought into the ASC, which is a masterful achievement. And congratulations on that. And it's beautiful to be able to see at your age, being in the industry, being an actor, a working professional, seeing the crew around you. And it seemed like what you noticed was how important all of the pieces were, especially cinematography. And at that time, was there were there any DPs that really were like, I want to be like that person one day? Yes. Caleb Deschanel. Oh, wow. So I remember being a super little kid. And my first memory of watching a movie is lying in my dad's arms. I'm four or five. And we're watching The Natural. And then a little while later, I saw another movie that I loved, Black Stallion. And those two movies sort of were the go my go-to movies for many, many years. And and you know, there wasn't IMDb Pro. I hadn't, I, I didn't really pay attention to the credits, but in looking back and realizing Caleb shot both those movies um, and, and those are burned in my memory and the, that memory started when I was a very little girl uh, and, and I'm constantly trying to make images that look like both those movies. Oh, wow. Well, Caleb Deschanel is one of the best, right? Yeah. His work is prolific. Every, a lot of people in the industry know his name. And now once you started to connect the dots, right, you had this feather, you were inspired. What was the next step for you? I know you ultimately went on to USC, but you still had to have some years in there. Were you trying to refine your craft through photography? What kept you inspired to ultimately take the next step? So the next step was I started um, I, I started living in the darkroom in high school. And so lunch, I was always there. Sometimes I'd get to school early and go into the darkroom. I had my own key and just constantly shooting stills, film stills. And then after, and then also at the same time, my sister was on a TV series called Cracker, which was on ABC, and Roy Wagner ASC shot it, and he was someone I really, really studied. It was I remember the set clearly. It was a two-story house set, and it was it was a television series, and I hadn't seen anything like what he was doing on TV before. It was very dark, lots of these long steady cam shots and some things that started on the second floor and came down to the first floor or vice versa. And and so I really started studying his work as well. And um and then and then writing my own I knew I also got the application to USC at some point and I knew actually my mother handed it to me because she really wanted me to go to school there. And um, and I, I, before I looked through the film school application and there was this one section that said some, uh, that you had to write like a two page essay and, and I'm like a two page essay. And I couldn't remember exactly, I can't remember now exactly what it was about. Um, but I realized it wasn't the essay that was important. It was that they were looking for someone who was, would, was able to tell a visual story. And so my, and so I spent about a year starting to think about what kind of, what kind, what my, how I was going to craft my essay. And now I think you've got lots of different ways to apply to USC. I think you show reels and you show video work, but at this point it was stills and an essay. And I, and, and those two combinations were, were how they judged if you were a storyteller. 
Oh, wow. And when when did you first start shooting? Did you start shooting young or was it once you start, got into USC? When was your first like project as a cinematographer? It was definitely when I got into USC. I mean, now it's amazing, right? Everyone has a camera in their pocket. But at that time, I think we had an old VHS camera. And so we didn't have any any sort of camera gear around my house. So it was definitely once I got to USC, I got my Super 8 camera and started shooting on that first. And then and then we shot 16 and 35. And and when I finished school, I spent the following year, I, I, I had a uh, full scholarship to USC. And so um, when I got out of it, I had two, two shorts that I felt were real worthy. Um, this one short called Meta that was my thesis film that I actually wrote um, and then and then someone else directed. But I wrote it because I wanted something very visual for my reel. And then another short that we flew to Japan and did, and it was a graduate thesis project. And when I finished school, I realized that was all I had and that wasn't enough to get me work. And I didn't want to pay for grad school. So I stuck around USC. There weren't very many people at the time who wanted to be cinematographers. And I offered all the grad students um, to shoot their films. And I shot 30 films, almost 30 films over the course of a year. And at the end of the, that year was when John Chu asked me to shoot When the Kids Are Away, which is his short film musical. And that's the, that we had worked together and he was a production designer on one of a music video I did. And um, he, he was a friend, but he, but that was where we really bonded and started our creative team. And so was that the first time you shot a musical? It was. And how was that experience? It was amazing because when I was a kid, I loved musicals. Musicals were on in our house all the time, especially Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers movies. Like we, my parents would let us have those on all the time. So that was, the, we'd come home after school, throw on the VHS tape, and that's what we watched. And then my mom was a singer and a dancer. And so we uh, we always had show tunes playing and she was, uh, she loved, loved Sondheim. So I knew all his music and um, and so, and, and when we made When the Kids Are Away, it was 2002, um, so exactly 20 years ago, and, and we, um, musicals weren't being made. Like, it was pre-Chicago, pre-Moulin Rouge, and I don't think a musical had been made since Newsies, and that was like 94, 95. And so the idea that we were making, like, John Chu wanted to make musicals, and I wanted to make musicals, and no one was doing it, it was really exciting. That's what's interesting. What I loved what you talked about, just to take a step back to is how you were frequently working. And after graduating, you did 30 projects, then you did a musical and that's your earliest start. And you've been collaborating with John Chu on multiple projects up to this point. And even going forward, you did LXD, you did Gems in the Hologram, even the more recently released In the Heights. And for your first musical, how did you go about trying to figure out what people have done in the past, right? There was a period through the 50s and 60s where musicals were extremely popular. Did you guys spend a lot of time looking to what they did in past cinema and what you guys wanted to do differently going forward? Uh, sorry, for what? Pro uh, the the, uh, the first short part. film? Yeah, the short um, film. So I, I think, uh, you know, I mean, it's so long ago now, mm -hmm. but I, I, I think we both at that point had a pretty huge knowledge of, I mean, we were in film school, so you, all you do is watch movies all the time. So we had a really good knowledge of, of, of cinema, of, of musical theater, um, of musical genre movies. And, and we had this amazing choreographer and who wasn't a student. He had been choreographing for like 20 or 30 years. And then the same with our steady cam operator, like long, long, long career. And those were like the two key pieces people to hire. And we realized that kind of core team to have a really great relationship with the with the steady cam operator and the choreographer was part of building the musical. And um, and it was all storyboarded and some shots are we did a Busby Berkeley shot uh, over a table where it's about it's about what moms do when their kids go to school and they do a musical number. And so they're like cleaning, uh, they're taking plates off the table and it's a big table. And we did a Busby Berkeley overhead, which later on and in the Heights, we did the same thing we did, except in a swimming pool. And um, there's many, many shots in When the Kids Are Away that we replicated in, in In the Heights. There's the last shot of the opening number there's dancing on the streets in in the heights um and it was there were 500 people dancing on the street and in 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 our short film we had 30 people dancing on the street 
And actually, John, a, a few months ago, he was digitizing all his mini DV tapes from our time at school. And he's like, look what I found. And he found all of the behind the scenes of us on that set. And he's like, look, we're standing exactly the way we stand and we're doing exactly what we do now. And then he had this interview with me and he said, Alice, what would you tell your future self? And I said, um, said a, whole, a whole bunch of things. And then I said, remember this moment. Remember, it's the, this was at our production meeting right before we started shooting. Remember this moment. Remember the moment before you've got 30 people dancing on the middle of the street at sundown. And then 20 years later, we do it on in the Heights, except instead of 30 people on the street, it's 500. That is incredible. And for this project, I imagine you guys shot it on film, right? No. Okay. So that was also the coolest thing. And it really started my relationship with Panavision, which is we, John wrote a letter to Bob Harvey at Panavision and said, we were doing this short film and we really, really, really wanted to get our hands on the first Panavised F900. And um, it hadn't come out yet. And we got to, sh and Bob gave us um, the camera for two weeks and we shot on that. So it was my first experience shooting um, digital. And I actually read that in an article that when I was doing some research, that's what, so this is when your relationship with Panavision got started. And back then, did they still have, uh, what is the program that the they new offer? The new yeah. filmmaker program? It, I, I, I don't know if that letter was part of the new filmmaker program. I, I used the new filmmaker program then for the next five or six years after that. So I don't, but I feel like John on his own just sort of mm -hmm. looked up who the president of Panavision was right. and wrote him a letter. And for those that don't know about the new filmmaker program, because I feel like it's an amazing opportunity, especially for filmmakers that are still in like uni to be able to work with Panavision and they'll offer you deals or how does that typically work? Do you know? I, I, I mean, I don't know what it is now, but mm -hmm. at the time it was like you paid a prep fee or at like $500 so that so that the prep techs could help you check out your gear and you'd go on a Friday afternoon and do a quick checkout and then usually and then or and then return it whenever you know however long mm -hmm. the deal was but there were lots of different programs like that i remember kino flow also had an amazing program and every friday at 4 30 i would be at kino flow in, uh, in sunland loading up my honda civic with whatever would fit in the back of my trunk and they for 50 dollars they would give you $50 and an insurance certificate they would give you um whatever you wanted for the weekend it just had to be back at 8 a.m on on friday morning and it would, you know, whatever was left at, at their warehouse. It was pretty cool. That and is awesome. I'm yeah. sure there's a lot. I mean, that was really the best program because then I used, I mean, it introduced me to Kino. I used, mm -hmm. I mean, I still use them. And, and, and these, these manufacturers really are invested in students. Um, Zeiss, I just went over there the other day and they've got an amazing outreach to students. I really, I think, I think, I think there's, I think these companies are invested in building relationships with young cinematographers early on. Yeah, absolutely. And shout out to all these companies that are doing an amazing job of helping our youth because that's the beauty of our industry. It is hard to get into, but if you talk with these companies, there's always an avenue. And it's amazing to see even back when you were at USC that Panavision was so willing to be able to give you an early Panavise F900, which I mean, that just came off of probably not on that specific camera, but shooting with George Lucas on the Star Wars film. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, they weren't in production, like there was only a couple. And mm -hmm. so it was to let us have the camera for the two weeks we needed it. It was pretty uh, incredible That's and generous. Awesome. Yeah. So after you got out of USC, a lot of these collaborations, how did you continue your momentum? How do you continue to connect the dots leading up to what now you've shot Tick, Tick, Boom? Oh, goodness. It's it's a lot of dots to connect that um, that sometimes zig and zag and go all over the place. Um, and like looking back, it, it feels, it feels like this magical sort of beautiful flow to where I am now. But at the time it was not that it was definitely, um, definitely taking jobs that I probably should have said no to, um, or doing jobs that I thought were just going to be like the best thing ever. And, and maybe they were, but no one saw them. And, um, and so I shot, I, so I finished, I finished that, what I call my graduate year, my, my free year of graduate school. And then I, um, I just, I ended up with an agent from when the kids are away. Cause John Chu was on the cover of Variety after someone saw it or Hollywood Reporter after someone saw 
the movie, a rough cut, and he had uh, suddenly this major motion picture he was attached to direct. And so that sort of gave me a little bit of momentum too. And I got an agent, which was great, um, more for just having that on my resume. And it's still agents when you're that early on in your career really don't help you find jobs. Um, But they were lovely people and it was wonderful. And then I shot a ton of, you know, $100,000 $100,000 movies and kept shooting shorts and a few music videos. I really wish I had gotten into the music video world, but, um, and then, you know, slowly my budgets grew a little bit. And then I was at Obama's first inauguration and I get a phone call from John Chu saying, I've got this project and everyone's going to make a hundred dollars a day. And, but I think it's something special. And I think I, I would love you to shoot it. And so he's like, but you need to be in LA in two days. I'm like, okay. So I jumped on a plane and it was, and I didn't even have scripts or anything. I just trusted. There was something in his voice that told me this was going to change the trajectory of things for me. And I jumped on the plane and we shot five, ep- the first five episodes of this web series. Um, and it was one of Hulu's very first web series. Now, of course you don't call them web series, they're series or content. And, um, and it was a complete play, a playground because no one was watching us. We could do whatever we wanted. And John's idea was this superhero show where people's superpowers were their dance moves. And so we got to explore how to tell um, tell stories through dance. And we met the choreographer, Christopher Scott, who we ended up doing In the Heights with. And... Um, and that relationship started to grow. And John and we shot. And after the first five episodes, um, I think Paramount came on board, and we had some more money to do it. And we shot three seasons and then thirty episodes. And it was probably the most wonderful, special time of my life. And everyone who worked on that project feels the same way. We we all uh, you see someone who worked on LXD walking down the street, and you run and you hug them because it was just this special moment in life. Is that project still available on Hulu? Um, it's on YouTube. Okay. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. And as you were progressing through these projects, what were some of the, were you constantly trying to network with other directors? Did you find stuff just stacking naturally? What were some of your tactics to help keeping this momentum? So there were a couple of other people that I met that that year I shot thesis films that I also was doing movies with. Um, there's this one person who edited, who was an editor at USC, but was breaking into directing and we did We did another web series together called Tainted Love, which was exciting and fun. And it was action and comic book driven uh, uh, um, stylistically. And so it it, it just was something I hadn't done before. And then um, and then what and 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 with him, I ended up doing another um, I did The Walking Dead. They it's called The Red Machete. And we won an Emmy for that. And it is um, they were also short form um, walking dead shows basically uh, on the internet. And that was great because I got to figure out zombies and horror and that was wonderful. So slowly those things kept populating my career and, and, and that director, his name is Avi Oabi. And we also did, uh, an, another project for Amazon together, which was also action, a drug smuggler thing that was, and so just like dipping my toes into different genres and working with different directors who are wonderful and I love. And and then um, and then I started doing a lot of kids movies, um, including this wonderful working with this wonderful director, Eric Champanella. And we made a movie called Alex and Me, which is about this little girl who hits her head and suddenly she sees the soccer player Alex Morgan in her life. And Alex starts um, coaching her. And, and so, and it was, it it was a very short shoot, not a ton of money, but it was a really wonderful, sweet story and a lovely human being that um, we keep trying to work together again and we're great friends. So, so those kind of movies. And then, and actually before that I did Gem and the Holograms, which I think sort of got me into suddenly doing a bunch of kid movies because Gem is based off a Hasbro doll. Mm -hmm. Um, And, but Gem for John and me was a concert movie. It's it's all it's five musical numbers, um, five concert numbers, and so that that was another way we started to play and learn about how to tell a story through song and dance. And Gem and the Holograms is such like a pop culture, 
you know, reference to a lot of people who grew up with those dolls. And I'm pretty sure there's like a whole cartoon around it as well. There is. Which I haven't had the chance to see the movie, but I'm very familiar with the cartoon. So I'm excited to actually go back and watch some of these other projects that you've shot. And over the years, were you cognizant of how your style was developing or is this something that happened naturally? What were some of your inspirations? Did you find yourself looking at photographers, other cinema cinematographers, or did you like art in general? Like for me, when I'm planning out a project, I really love looking at paintings and I love listening to music. Those are the two biggest uh, inspiring catalysts. What about for yourself? So the same. Um, and what I did, I, I did was I joined something uh, at the LA County Museum of the Arts they have a um, museum service council. And to become a volunteer there, you have to take 10 Saturdays, full days of art history lessons. And, and then you get access to their library and, and getting to go in and see art early before people are there. And it was amazing. And so I learned, I, I, I had taken a lot of art history in college, but to actually be, take art history of the collection that exists um, at the museum and then being able to actually really see the paintings in real life versus on a book was incredible. And so it, it really is a lot of painting and photography for me. I don't really love watching movies when I'm prepping another movie. Sometimes I'll watch movies that are at least contemporary movies. I'll watch older movies, but I don't want to be, I don't want to watch anything within the past 10 years because I, a, a, a colorist once said to me, he said, I was col uh, coloring these movies and suddenly I realized they all looked the same and I realized I was doing what was on trend. And I feel that way about watching a movie is suddenly, oh, I want to replicate this lighting or this shot in Dune or you know, or, or Belfast or whatever, whatever the hot movie is at the moment, instead of doing what's right for the story. And the cinematographers who made those movies were doing what was right for the story. And so, and so looking at art and photographs and older movies is really how I, how I get inspired. And I think that's really good advice, trying to not have a preconception of what a film could be before reading the script and going into it. A lot of people and I don't think that this is necessarily something that's a trend, but you do see replication happening and trying to break that replication, right? And I think that's important where movies, well, I still think you can definitely learn something from it. I think it is good to sometimes not cons over consume a movie before trying to craft something yourself. And I think that's a great note for younger cinematographers or even directors that are trying to learn what their voice is. And I would even say not putting pressure on yourself to figure out what that is, because it seemed like it came naturally. And most great filmmakers, they let it happen naturally for what the project uh, is offering them. So I guess smash cut to 2021, tick, tick, boom. That's when it comes out. But I would love to go back to when that project was first getting started. What when were you brought on? I met Lin-Manuel Miranda because we were doing In the Heights together. He was a producer on it. He wrote it. It's his musical that was on Broadway before Hamilton. And so, and I didn't have a ton of interaction with him on In the Heights, but the last day of the movie, um, I get a call from my agent and he said, Lynn would love you to read his movie that he's directing and, and meet with him on it. Um, and it's called Tick, Tick, Boom. So three days after we wrap In the Heights in August, 2019, I get on a Zoom call with with Lynn and we start talking about Tick, Tick, Boom. And it was a few months before I actually started working on the project, but it was very close to After in the Heights. In Tick, Tick, Boom, to just give more information for those who haven't seen it, and it's available now on Netflix, it is all about Jonathan Larson's process of making Superbia, which he then adapted. It was it an off-Broadway show. So, so, um, so it's his... Uh, it's about Jonathan Larson, who mm -hmm. wrote Rent, mm -hmm. um, at the musical Rent, and he passed away the night before it was to premiere off-Broadway. And, and Tick, Tick, Boom is sort of three different periods of time um, where, where we're, we're looking at Jonathan Larson in 1990 workshopping his musical Superbia, which he was trying to get made. And it's a musical that never got made. And then we have, um, and then after Superbia, he wrote um, what became Tick, Tick, Boom. It had a different title called Boho Days at the time. Um, and then after his death, it was renamed Tick, Tick, Boom. And, um, and so we have him on stage, Jonathan Larson on stage telling or doing his musical of Tick, Tick, Boom. 
Um, and, and that is telling the story of, of, of him trying to get Superbia made. Mm -hmm. And when you got the script, was there something that really spoke to you? Yes. So, um, the movie takes place in 1990 in New York city and, um, it is very similar to my childhood. I grew up in, in New York. I was 10 years old in 1990 when this movie takes place. I had just left New York for California a few mo months before. And so, um, and my mother was a dancer, just like Susan in Tick, Jonathan's girlfriend in Tick, Tick, Boom. And my father was a playwright. And we lived in an apartment building, tenement apartment, just like Jonathan with the tight walk up staircase and a bathtub in the kitchen. And my dad's friends were constantly, his artist friends were always in our house, filling our house with all these ideas and laughter and joy and some sadness and I would also watch my dad's heartbreak over and over again as he was trying to make it as a playwright. And so when I read the script, which I knew nothing about Jonathan Larson except for Rent, I was like, I have to make this movie. Uh, and um, and so and so the first page of my lookbook that I showed Lynn in that first conversation three days after In the Heights um, were just pictures of my childhood and um, pictures of our apartment, pictures of my dad, pictures of my dad's plays, things like that. And and Lynn and I are the same age, and we were both 10 in 1990, and so we both have this same memory of what New York City was like, but it's it's from a 10-year-old's perspective. It's not from an adult's perspective, and, um, and that perspective is one where light and color and emotions are all heightened, and so when... So when Lynn started talking to me, he it was exactly the, what he wanted because Jonathan Larson is this very childlike figure. He doesn't want to grow up. The opening number is called 3090 where he sings about Peter Pan and finding Never Never Land. And so it, it, was, it really gave us this jumping off creative point to start our conversation. That's amazing. I love how personal it was to both of you. I think to me that really came across because the film is personal to begin with. You know, a lot of people found him to be, he's, he's iconic in the Broadway scene, musicals. And I would love to talk more about how the collaboration looked like first starting on this project between you and Lin-Manuel. And from what I know, this was the first time you ever worked in a director DP capacity, right? Um, Lin yeah, 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 it's his first movie. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, what did that look like between you guys getting this project? You had the script. How did you guys start to work collaboratively? So first I asked Lynn to, well, first we location scouted. So we started prepping the movie right before Christmas. So we spent a couple of weeks just looking at locations with the production designer. And that was this very collaborative process. And and the production designer, Alex Dietrichlando, is just amazing and and such a good communicator. And so we, so that we scouted and then we came back in January and started prepping um, like on paper. And, um, and we, First, I asked Lynn to go through the script with me. And oftentimes, if a director's willing, I because I come from this acting perspective, I ask the director to give me an intention in each scene, that the camera is another character. And so what is what is the feeling? What is the intention that we want to to convey to the audience? And I ask for like one or two words, very simple intentions. And then after we go through that process, then we sit down with the storyboard artist and so we sat down with um, Grant, our storyboard artist, and we and Grant was there. And usually it's me, the storyboard artist, and the director. But Lynn wanted to bring other people along. So we had the AD and the production designer and the writer, Stephen Levinson. And all, all, I guess that's six of us, I guess. Yeah. So all six of us would sit around a table. Lynn and, and Stephen would read the scenes out loud, acting them out. And then we'd start just talking about talking about the scenes. And Alex would have this um, mod set models, or mostly he had models with us, but sometimes they were just pa mm -hmm. um, paper plans. And then we, and then we, he could show us things like, oh, this moves here, or this moves here, or you could get a great shot from back here. So he had ideas based on the set that we didn't know about. So it was wonderful to have him there. And then Stephen Levinson could very quickly change the script based on our ideas. And there were several things that like came about in these storyboard sessions. And I attribute this kind of working environment to the way you make a stage show. And that's the world Lynn has been in for the last 20 years, where you, you don't have to know all the answers right away. You get to try things on. And, and so our storyboard sessions would be, we Grant would draw them, send them to us. We'd 
come back and say, oh, this actually doesn't work. And then he'd go back and change them. And we'd workshop, basically, in essence, workshop uh, workshop our movie, except with storyboards. And when did you guys get started on uh, making the project and going through this whole process? That had to have been pre-pandemic, right? It was pre-pandemic. So it was, we started shooting like March 1st, 2020, and we got shut down on March 12th. And something I would love to talk about since this was your first collaboration with Lynn and this was his first film, is there something that you look for from a director before going into a project? Is there a certain level of creativity that you're trying to get from them? Is there something specific that inspires you? Um, I think Lynn's passion on this inspired me. I mean, the story to him was very personal. He became, he started writing musical theater because Jonathan Lar because of Jonathan Larson. He saw Rent when he was 16 on Broadway. And he said, wow, I don't have to write, I can write musicals from my own voice, from the music I like to listen to. And so he, it, this was a story he was so, so passionate about. And that passion just filled everybody up and, and, um, and we all sort of started falling in love with Jonathan Larson through Lynn's eyes. And we had all this reference footage. Um, you know, we've got cameras mm -hmm. on us constantly as living in this in this decade. Mm -hmm. um, but in 1990, that wasn't true. No one recorded anything. But it was true for Jonathan Larson. His friend had a beta cam and her dad was a documentarian and she filmed him constantly. So we had eight hours of beta cam footage of Jonathan Larson from mid eighties till his death. And, and so that gave us inspiration. And Lynn would like fast forward through things. He's like, look at him here at the Moondance Diner working. Look how happy he is. Look how much joy he has. And that, and that just infused, infused everyone with like, okay, this is Jonathan Larson and we're gonna tell this story. That's amazing, especially to have that much footage. And I'm assuming that's the inspiration behind some of the like home footage within the film. And I would love to talk a bit more about the look, how you guys got to that. But specifically what I was reading is you shot with the Panavision DXL2 and you went with the G-Series Anamorphics. Now testing for this project, what was Lin-Manuel looking for? What were you looking for? And how did you land on these tools specifically? So when we started testing, I, on every movie I test lots of cameras, lots of lenses, and then we project them and you know, sometimes I have a really strong feeling about what the, what camera lens we should use. Other times the director does. Sometimes it, it, it and then sometimes it's like, okay, these are we're down to the these couple of cameras. Let's go back and test again. Um, and on Tick Tick Boom, it was Lynn's first movie, and so I said to him, I'm like, do you want to be involved in this, or do you want me to make these decisions? And I want just want to know how involved do you want to be? And he said, I want to learn everything. So I went to Panavision and shot tests. And then we'd go to company three and project them and start talking about what qualities of the lenses I liked or why um, why I sort of like this camera better than that camera for this story. And we and and in the end, Lynn, it was a blind test for Lynn because he he had no you know, he had no um, allegiance to any brand or or any anything. And so I just sort of tried to just tell him things without, without guiding him in any way. But, and, and we came down to liking the Panavision camera and liking the, and liking the um, G series lenses. Was it ever up for consideration to shoot this project on film? We never discussed shooting it on mm -hmm. film. Um, and I don't know, I don't know why. I mean, we knew we were adding film grain very early on, I think I think the freedom of of not worrying about how much you're shooting on mm -hmm. on on digital is was one consideration. We are a Netflix movie, which is another consideration. Not that they don't do projects on film, but I think um, it just wasn't it wasn't in our conversation. Mm -hmm. So why anamorphic? You know, you were shooting in like a lot of tight spaces, and you you guys did a very good job of showing Manhattan for what it actually is versus some of these projects where apartments look massive. You really showed the sense of claustrophobia, but also how fun and vertical the city is. Did you feel that anamorphic was helping tell that story? Yeah, I, I liked 
So we we did a lot of things to the G-Series lenses. Um, with Dan Sasaki at Panavision, we had lots of conversations. I I was in New York, he was in LA. I would send him pictures and references and and he would work on the lenses and send them back and then we'd sort of go back and forth that way. But he, um, but we, we chose a large format camera because we did want to be really intimate with Jonathan. And so we wanted these tight claustrophobic shots and the G-series lenses have really good close focus for anamorphic lenses. So we could get really, we could get in there and be tight with him. And the, the sets were quite small. And I didn't want, one, we didn't have a ton of time, so I didn't want to have to fly away walls. But I also felt like feeling the claustrophobia of having to physically be really close to, to Andrew Garfield was important. And then, um, and then, and then all those claustrophobic shots, then when, you're in his dream when you're in these musical numbers, you're suddenly wide and vast. And I felt the anamorphic gave us both those possibilities that when we cut to um, our wide of the swimming pool and swimming or in Come to Your Senses, we're on the roof and we're pulling back and you see the Hudson River beyond or on in Sunday when the wall comes down and you suddenly see New York City as a Syrah painting that 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 we could get that with a large format camera and and anamorphic lenses. That's awesome. And as you picked these tools, we were talking about there's three different time periods that you were bouncing around. And it was pretty prevalent when you saw that there was a more saturated look and there was a desaturated look. And more specifically, I feel like the scene where it popped out the most, I believe it's Michael's character and Jonathan, where they're going from his apartment to the new apartment that Michael is going to be moving into. I loved how that was assembled. How did you guys come about developing that style for the film? Um, so it was uh, Lynn, when we first talk, started talking about 3090, he said, when we go into the musical number or, or in when we come up. So 3090 is uh, starts on the stage as a live performance. And then and then we suddenly go into Jonathan's 1990 world. And he said I, he wanted everything to feel a little heightened when we were in the musical number versus when we're just in Jonathan's world in regular dialogue scenes. And so we hint to it in that opening number and then in in um no more which is our second number it really it really explodes in terms of now now jonathan's now jonathan's um new york apartment is even even more desaturated and we use something in resolve called a color warper and stefan nakamura who's who's the colorist um helped figure that out because during editorial just this all the saturation was taken out and like just a brown tint was put over it. And it, it, it was, it felt cheap. It didn't feel like a good version of what we were going for. And so during our color process, I worked with Stefan and, uh, and said, and, you know, and, and he's like, well, there's this new tool on in Resolve called the Color Warper. Let's just see what it does. And so it, and so we used that and it pulled out selective colors and, and inverse colors in a way. And so, and and I think that was like the fifth thing we tried. And and we we're like, yes, that that's it. Um, or I was like, yes, that's it. But then I it needed Lynn to come in and say, see if he liked it or not. And so we had we had a version that looked very much like what editorial looked like, and then we had this version. And and then when you and then in no more, then you're suddenly in Michael's apartment and it's and Lynn wanted it to feel like um Wizard of Oz, where you're suddenly in Oz, where everything's just grand and beautiful and the light is beautiful. And so that that is how we conceived that number. That is amazing. And did you finalize all of these looks before going into principal? Is that something that you made sure to figure out or did you find some of it after the film when you're in the color grading process as well? Um, most of it we found, uh, I mean, most of it is based off of what we did in uh, on our um, mm -hmm. with the DIT. Um, and sometimes after work, I would also go to the lab and work with our dailies colorist just to make sure everything was coming in. The, that the no more sequence was the only number that we weren't happy with what what we had the color pull out versus what we mm -hmm. ended up with. So what did principal look like? When did you guys start? And something that I read is you started shooting for a few weeks and then the pandemic happened. I believe you started in March right of 2020 and then you were shut down for six months and you, then you were finally able to start up again in the fall. I would love to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, it was, 
amazing. The the on March we shot eight days. So we started on a Tuesday. We shot a four day week. Then our second week was on a Monday, and we shot through Thursday. And the Wednesday before we got shut down, so March eleventh, Lynn and I looked at each other at the end of the day and said, "This was the best day of our lives." And then the next day, um, everyone came to work, and the world had changed. And suddenly, it became real that. COVID was here and something was about to happen. And we were shooting at Jonathan Larson's real apartment. Um, um, we shot our exteriors there and where and um, the, the um, stairwell there and and some POVs from from the apartment he actually lived in and where he passed away. And um, so I at lunch, uh, the first shot after lunch was from the POV from his apartment window down looking at the phone booth at Susan. And at lunch, the producers came to us and they said, so Netflix is having uh, their meeting right now. We're gonna know things in a few hours. And earlier in the morning, they t asked us all not to like touch each other, wash our hands. There was hand sanitizer suddenly everywhere. And then, um, and then, and to stand as far apart as we could, but we're in this really cramped, space um, stairwell in a real tenement apartment building. So we couldn't have any distance. And then, um, and so I go up to Jonathan's apartment and I've got a finder with me and I'm looking and lunch is still going on, but I just wanted to be quiet. And, and I just started crying and I'm like, I thought this movie was gonna be over. I didn't understand that this, we were about to have this huge pandemic, but I was so devastated that we weren't gonna finish this movie. And then sure enough, at, at, after, at midnight when we wrapped, they said everyone was gonna go home for two weeks and everyone knew two weeks wasn't realistic. So, mm -hmm. um, and so then there's this, this period of being really sad. I mean, Lynn was sure it was his first time directing and he was sure Netflix, and we were a small movie, he was sure Netflix was never gonna wanna pick this up where, where we ended, we had barely shot anything. And, um, and, and then we started doing something called Tick Tick Zooms, where once a week, we would all, I think it was Tuesdays, everyone was invited, 500 cast and crew members were invited to jump on these Zoom calls. And at first it was therapy sessions with, what are you doing? How do you feel being locked in your apartment? How are you getting toilet paper? Things like that. And then it became trivia and games. And it, it was a time where we all bonded and kept, kept the sort of joy that we had found on that movie and and it got us through the next six months and somewhere around june lynn called me up and said i think we're gonna or actually julia called me up she was the producer and called me up and said i think we're gonna go back and i think we're gonna open our offices again at the end of july and and it was it, and then suddenly it was like, oh, my God, we are going to get to finish this movie. It was pretty exciting. And then every day we thought we were going to get shut down. But out of, we never shut down once. We shot another. Netflix gave us a full. Uh, we reprepped the movie. We had two more months to reprep the movie because a lot of locations we lost during the pandemic. Um, and then we um, shot 42 days more and all no, no one got COVID. It was pretty great. That is amazing. I love the sense of camaraderie that is derived from filmmaking and especially hearing a story like that when met with something so challenging, right? For you and Lynn, the film's extremely personal and having to go through that hardship, but being ingenuitive to keep everyone's morale high in the therapy sessions with Tick Tick Zoom, that is an amazing story. And for anyone that's going through like hard stuff, just keeping camaraderie and keeping each other close is a beautiful way of, it shows you how important filmmaking can be and how important the filmmaking family is. Yeah, our filmmaking family was incredible. And I attribute the fact that we never shut down to the fact that we really, I mean, ev everyone, it, all 500 people agreed, okay, we wanna make this movie and we're gonna be as safe as possible in our personal lives. And, um, or some of us, like I was sequestered, I didn't see my family for four months. Um, and a lot, you know, other people as well, um, just, and not being even allowed to go into a coffee shop. So like anyone close to the actors had to really be sequestered. So it was, it was intense, but it also, I think lent to this, us all making sure we were taking care of each other really well. Mm -hmm. So the production's back up. 
It seemed like there was a, you were shooting on location and on stage. I would love to hear about was Jonathan's apartment, was that replicated on a stage? Uh, what was some of the process with that? So Jonathan's apartment was an almost exact replica of his apartment. Um, two weeks before he passed away, he had this, he was really scared that his apartment was gonna catch on fire from that um, gas fireplace that, um, um, that was illegal in his apartment. And so for insurance purposes, he took his friend's beta cam and wandered around and filmed every single item in his apartment. So we knew where everything was. And a lot of his friends still had things like the keyboard was his, all the paintings on the walls were his in the exact same place they were when he died. And the director's chair he sat in at his desk was his. And I even think the Macintosh computer was his. I mean, his friends really saved all his things. Wow. Some of the wardrobe, Andrew Garfield wore. Um, there's, a, I remember at least one thing. There was this blue flannel shirt that he wears. That was Jonathan's. Um, so we, so we were able to really have a recreate it. But Jonathan, so that he could get more rent from his friends, gave them the room with the window, and that was the thing I changed. I said, you can't give him. I, I need Jonathan Larson's bedroom to have a window because I don't want him in a in a box with no no natural lighting. So we moved. That's the, that's really the only thing that changed. That is very interesting, especially uh, the fact that they kept a lot of his belongings and Andrew Garfield playing Jonathan Larson was able to wear some of his wardrobe. That is very cool. I feel like you don't hear that very often in production going into movies. Typically, you're going to have wardrobe, strike all new stuff. So that's really cool that they were also his estate was also letting that letting you guys use his stuff. Yeah. So well, his sister was a producer yeah. on the movie okay. and which was wonderful. She was there, I think, every I, she was there in prep. She was there all the time. I, she, I think she didn't miss a day of our shoot. And she, that was, she was a wonderful resource to, to making sure we were telling his story accurately. Wow. So a question that I have, which I feel like a lot of people who don't shoot musicals often, what is the mindset as a cinematographer going into a musical versus, say, a more traditional narrative film like a drama where there's no one singing, there's not set pieces like that, the blocking's a little bit different? How do you prep going into a musical? So I think mu the hardest thing about musicals is like when you go see a stage musical, everyone has bought a ticket and you're like on board. You, you're, you're going to see this because because it's a, because you love going to the theater and you love seeing musicals and you all have this collective agreement that people can break out into song and dance. But that's not the same agreement for a movie musical. And so we we knew we needed to make sure the trans. Uh, we knew the key to a successful musical is when you transition seamlessly from reality into this musical world and how you build how you build that storytelling language and for and so what what Lynn and I did was work really hard on those transitions from dialogue scenes into the musical and and I think that is how um you know the 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 compliments I the biggest compliment that I feel like we get on this movie is that is, is when people say, I hate musicals, but I love this movie because it doesn't there because we got those we got those people who are not musical fans to love this movie. And and when we made this movie, we thought it was for a very small group of people who loved musicals, who loved musical theater, who loved Jonathan Larson. And it grew into something so much bigger than that. And and I I I, I think part of that. Um, besides Andrew Garfield being completely brilliant, is that is that we we really worked hard on telling the story through transitions, and the editorial team took those transitions and and figured out how to make sure the story these three different pe in the the 1990 reality, 1990 musical world, and stage musical all all blend all worked seamlessly together and flowed without feeling jarring that suddenly you're in Jonathan's apartment watching him and Michael dance through the space. And correct me if I'm wrong, I heard that, and I don't know if you did it for this film or if you do it for all of your musicals, but you built some form of like previs animatic because you wanted to make sure that the tempo was right to the music. And I think I read some trivia that a lot of the original score or soundtrack is songs that Jonathan Larson produced and you guys used it for this film. So what was that process like building these animatics? 
So the animatics are something I learned from John Chu on In the Heights. On In the Heights, I think we have, I can't remember, 16 or 18, it's an even number, 16 or 18 musical numbers. And John took our storyboards and then dance rehearsal footage that I, uh, that a combination of me and Christopher Scott, the choreographer, and, and John took um, during dance rehearsals during our prep. And then he, and then he took the pre-records from the music department, and he'd cut, he'd cut the scenes basically together um, with these, with these, and created animatics. Um, and then, somewhere in the middle of prep, maybe two or three weeks in to us storyboarding, I realized as I was communicating with the um, gaffer and the key grip and the camera operators that I was missing that tool, that that tool was so incredibly important to us on In the Heights. And even though we don't have as many musical numbers on Tick, Tick, Boom, we still needed the we still needed the animatics. So I started cutting these animatics and then I'd send them to Lynn and, and that's when we started noticing that we didn't have the proper transitions, that we really, really needed to craft those transitions. And so then when we started crafting those transitions and in, we'd have Grant um, redraw frames for those transitions. And then, and, and that, it, it, it was this, it was, I love the process. I'm not an editor at all, and I loved thinking about things on this movie in terms of in terms of exact cuts because every choice we made was so specific. And what is the software that you use to build these animatics? Final Cut. Final Pro, Cut. Right? That yeah, yeah, yeah. Final, Final Cut, Cut Pro. Pro. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. And how long does it typically take? For, is it just you putting these together? Are you working with the director? So I did them by myself, and then I'd send them to Lynn. He'd give me notes. I'd send them to Lynn. Um, and then incorporate the changes from the storyboard artist too, and then send them to the producer and make sure she was good to release them to the crew. And then, um, sorry, you had another question? Oh, uh, no, I think that pretty much covered it. Okay. That. Yeah. Um, but then I think there was one towards the very end of prep that I just didn't finish cutting and the assistant editor did it. I can't remember which number it was. Oh, wow. In one of my favorite scenes that I'd love to talk about, I'm not sure if you did an animatic for this one, but so much of the film, especially in one of the turning points, is about crafting Susan's song. And then we finally get to the point where Jonathan Larson, he's going to present it all to the producers, and it's the sequence between Alexandria Ship playing Susan, and then we have Vanessa Hutchins playing uh, Caressa, and we have Susan's character on the rooftop. What I loved about that scene, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but you balanced the perfect, it felt theatrical, but then still dreamlike coming from Jonathan's perspective. I would love to talk about your inspiration, what you guys are trying to go for, for that whole scene. So Come to Your Senses is interesting because it's actually the only one we did not do an animatic for, I believe. I think that's correct. Um, and... We, uh, but the way we, we wanted to make sure basic, we shot Susan on the roof first and we shot that our first week of filming when we came back from the pandemic. So our first new week of filming and then, and then the caressa scene in the workshop, we filmed about six weeks later. So we had this huge time span between them. And so we had to really know what, how we want, we, we needed to know ahead of time where we were going to put cam and cameras in each space. And the rooftop is a set and the other space is a real location. And so because it's a real location, we had distance challenges. So the first thing we did was figure out where Jonathan's chair was in relationship to Caressa at the workshop. And then we matched it. So, so on as part of our prep and our scouting, we figured that out. And then and then on the rooftop, we matched that distance too. We went to the set and we taped everything out and made sure the chair and and the and the relationship worked out well and that they didn't feel too far apart. And then um and then we and then we realized they did feel too far apart. And so then we pu pulled them in closer and then we went back to the theater and we put them or to the workshop space and we put them closer together. So it was a and then and then we only had a certain amount of height in the location versus being on the roof stage. And so that also became 
uh, how high we could get our camera. And that's why the, at the end of the sequence, we end up pulling out and you seeing, you're seeing the whole city and we end on, on, um, on Susan and, uh, for that. And then for Caressa, we end up on a different shot, which is her back. And so, um, so it, the, and then everything else was exact same camera position. So this, the script said it was going to be a split screen and we, we, knew that was we we immediately agreed it was never going to work as a split screen between these two different women singing the same song and so we only covered susan singing her part and vanessa singing her part so you couldn't suddenly cut to vanessa when susan was singing so it was very the the parts were very specific and then our camera positions were it, it when we got to the workshop space we had already done it on the on the roof so we just were like okay a camera goes here, B camera goes here. And then we did it that way. When you're shot listing a film like Tick, Tick, Boom, or even In the Heights in creating these storyboards, I know a lot of other cinematographers and directors will create rules of engagement to help devise the film language, the composition, the frame selection. Is that something that you find yourself doing as well? Um, mine are really the intentions. Mm -hmm. So I create a spreadsheet and I have the intentions that I went through with the director on day one with the script and I, I have those. And um, I, f I feel like I'm more of an intuitive storyteller versus a rule storyteller. And uh, when you're working with talent like Andrew Garfield, especially for a musical, right? You have so many moving pieces, blocking. What are some tips and strategy that you do as the director of photography, working with the director to help keep the talent in the pocket? Um, so it, it, so the incredible thing about working on a musical is that you get so much time with the actors early on because instead of them being there a couple of days before shooting or even a couple of weeks, you have them at the very beginning because they have to do dance boot camp, music boot camp, vocal lessons, and for Andrew Garfield, piano lessons. And, and then they start doing pre-records. And so I would go in, I would sneak in I was invited, but I just like go sit in a corner and watch the pre-records because they gave me insight into the way the actors were going to perform the scenes. And that to me was really important because when you pre-record, essentially it's the performance. It is, it is it, it, um, because they're going to lip sync, although we do live singing too, but it gives you sort of an idea of what's about to happen. And so I, I, I would do that. I would always go to dance rehearsal as much as I could. We actually prepped a lot of the movie at the dance rehearsal space in Midtown so that we could um, pop into the dance rehearsals. And then, and then there were lots of pre, um, there were lots of table reads I'd go to. And then there were lots of on our feet rehearsals in like when Susan and, um, and Jonathan are having their big fight in the apartment. Um, we shot that after COVID. But nine months before, during our prep in January, we were on an empty, uh, the walls were up on the Jonathan Larson set, but no furniture was in there yet. And I filmed the whole thing with my iPhone. And nine months later, it, we, had, we had picked the exact same frames that we did, that we shot nine months later. I could cut the same scene with my iPhone if I wanted to. Um, in an empty apartment with no hair or makeup or anything. That's awesome. But it was, it was, so those kind of, and, and I, the fun part about working with Lynn was that he was always, he always was happy to have me there. And I'd really just sit in a corner and watch things. And then when he was ready, you know, I'd jump on my feet and start working out the shots with him. Oh, wow. And for our audience, for those, we, you know, maybe there's someone that's about to shoot a musical. What is some advice that you would give a first time filmmaker about to shoot their first musical, knowing that it's not going to be a traditional narrative film? What have you learned over the multiple projects that you've done? Make the choreographer your best friend. Um, the two of you can design shots together that are incredible versus because they they understand how the dance is going to work in, in the location and you might not quite get that and so when you when you start to get in their head then you're able to see okay I see how, we're in this rehearsal space but I see how you're crafting it for the actual location and and then you can start designing the shots from there um and also the same thing like go to pre-records it really 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 gives you a huge leap forward in your prep. 
That is amazing. And yeah, it seems like previs always important, regardless if it's narrative, a musical, previs, making sure you're working closely with the director, getting to know everyone, like you said, choreographer. That is something that I've never even thought of, right? I've never done a musical, but yeah. That has to be your best friend you guys it's like a song and dance it takes two to tango the camera has to be dancing perfectly with the talent and that's just very impressive what you did with the team from lin-manuel to yourself and everyone else involved it was extremely impressive at tick tick boom oh, and you. i just want to say thank you so much for putting all of that together all right well this was amazing is there anything else you would like to let our audience know about tick tick boom um, it was an amazing movie to work on, and I just feel incredibly grateful every day I get to step on set, and um, and I hope you guys go watch it. It's on Netflix, and um, and I hope you're inspired. And are you on Instagram so people can keep up with you? I am, hash, or no, underscore Alice Brooks underscore. Amazing. Well, Alice, thank you so much for stopping by at Filmmakers Academy. It was a pleasure getting to know you better, and we look forward to keeping in touch. And uh, yeah, we'll catch you next time. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut, and I'm an ASC cinematographer. And my wife and I have created this incredible resource called the Filmmakers Academy. And we'd love for you to download and rate our app. If you're a filmmaker, do yourself a favor and download the Filmmakers Academy app today. It's available wherever you get your apps, most notably the App Store, Google Play, Amazon App Store, and the Roku Channel Store. The app includes everything on the platform for all access members and from content to community and coaching opportunities, everything you need to master your craft. So download the app, and this is the most important part. Be sure to rate it. Rating us really helps us spread the word and enhance our rankings in this dedicated app store. So if you love what we're doing, this is a way to show it. Together, let's take your career as a filmmaker to the next level.